Good morning. Welcome again. We are in Psalm 104, right in the middle of the Bible. If you have a Bible, uh, physically or on your phone, please open it up to Psalm 104. Leave it open there so you can follow along. Check my work as I go along. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers we call chapters. The little numbers we call verses. The Psalms are a collection of poems and songs that God has given us to teach us how we are to worship Him and talk to Him. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it's night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do bless and praise you once again. 
We thank you for speaking to us not only in your world, but also and especially and most clearly in your word. Help us by understanding your word this morning to better understand your world and to see so many more reasons to praise you because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people today are wondering where God is, where he can be found, whether we can know anything about him or what he's saying. Many people think that God is not there, that he's given up, that he's never been there. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is always speaking to us. God is always revealing himself to everybody, everywhere, throughout the entire world, even through the armadillo. John Calvin, Genevan reformer from the 1500s, he said that there is no spot in the universe where you cannot discern at least some sparks of God's glory. I drove back from from Amarillo yesterday. I was discerning sparks of God's eternity as I drove. (laughs) Our psalm this morning is a poem that's meant to help us see the beauty and the majesty of God by way of seeing the beauty and the majesty of his world, his creation. As Christians, we are not meant to try to escape from the world, but rather to make our home in it, in loving service to God, understanding that we too, like the world around us, are his creatures. From beginning to end, the Bible is always heading off two alternate ways of viewing the world, two ways that have ancient roots and are around us everywhere today. The first one is this. The Bible denies that the world is itself divine, that the world is God himself, or that it's a piece of God. This is the basic idea behind ancient paganism and Eastern spirituality. But the second idea that the Bible is always trying to head off is this. It also denies that the world is a cold, closed system, running on its own. This is the basic idea behind various ancient Greek philosophies and also, too, of course, modern philosophies like Darwinism, scientism, and atheism. Instead, against both of these things, the Bible says this. It says that we and this world are not God. This world and we are infinitely distinct from God. We are his creation. We are creatures. And God himself is personal and loving. He's present and active in every bit of his creation all the time. So we are not God. The world is not God. But God is very present in this world. He is around us everywhere. God brought all of this into existence out of nothing. He sustains all of it now according to his perfect wisdom. The modern world largely says that there's no there there. That it's all random and chaotic and meaningless that there's no higher order or purpose to this world or to our lives. But this beautiful poem is here to help us see and love and even delight in the world rightly. It does this by helping us to see and to love and to delight in God himself as its creator. In the very first line, the author of this poem commands himself to bless the Lord. Why? 
he says, because the Lord is very great. He's clothed with splendor and majesty. God is spectacular. He's weighty. He's unfathomable in his goodness and his truth and his beauty. And so the psalm is beginning with this language of royalty. This is kingly language because it's trying to express God's brilliance and magnificence. This is why the Bible so often uses the language of light to describe God. There's no darkness in him. There's nothing twisted in him. He's always drawing attention to himself. He's always giving but never deriving energy and life and existence. Bless the Lord. Why? Because he's great and majestic. Why is he great and majestic? The psalm goes on to focus on this. Because his creation shows us all these things about him. That's what the psalm wants us to see and to do. For many of us today, responding to this psalm rightly is probably going to mean looking less at our screens, slowing down, paying much more attention to God's world, looking at things much more slowly, even looking at a tree and paying attention to it, wondering what makes this tree a tree? What makes it interesting? What does it show me about God? Our world is so quick, so busy, so fast-paced. It is so hard for us to do the kinds of things that this psalm is pointing us to. We need to look around. But before we go along on this giddy tour of the universe that the psalm is going to take us on, I want to point out a couple of things. First, it's not talking about God in the abstract. It begins and it ends with repeatedly using God's name. God's name, Yahweh which in our Bibles we translate as the Lord with little tiny capital letters. Yahweh, it's God's covenant name. It's the name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. It's the name that God has given to himself in the context of his promises and his commitment to his people. And so the psalmist repeatedly refers to Yahweh as my God. The whole psalm is set against the backdrop of God's Mercy, which we heard about last week in Psalm 103. It's set against the backdrop of God's promises to rescue his people from the misery of sin and death. Promises which climax in the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus and then his rising again a couple days later after his death as a down payment on his promise to resurrect the entire universe as well as anybody who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus. And so the creation around us is teaching us and all people about God's power and majesty. But if you're a Christian, if you have received God's mercy in Jesus, you can see even more clearly in that cross of Jesus the mercy and the power of God. And so now you have even clearer lenses through which you can see and delight in God by seeing and delighting in his creation because now you are seeing and delighting it as someone who has been forgiven. In knowing God as a merciful and a forgiving God through Jesus, we have an even greater reason to delight in the goodness and the abundance of this world. We know 
that this world is an undeserved gift. It is an undeserved gift. Every facet of our life is given to us by grace. We are sinners who have been rescued by God's grace in Jesus. But we also know that as wonderful and as delightful as this world can be, there's something wrong with it. This is not where the psalm is going to focus, but it's in the backdrop. You hear in verse 29 about the suffering of people and even animals in times of lack. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. You hear too about death, which the Bible says is God's curse on a world that has rebelled against him. The psalm says that when you take away their breath, they die and they return to their dust. The psalmist even prays at the very end that God would change him so that his thoughts and his attitudes and his emotions would be pleasing to God, which of course implies that it's possible that they sometimes might not be pleasing to God. And then in the final verse 35, kind of out of nowhere, but it makes sense when you think about it, in verse 35 he suddenly and forcefully prays that God would wipe the world clean of all sin and sinners. Because sin, the Bible says, is an alien force. It's a parasite that's ruining and harming God's wonderful creation. And so this love and this delight in God's creation should always come with a hatred for sin, with a desire that God would get rid of it in our own lives and in the world around us. So the psalm is doing a lot more than merely noting that the world is beautiful and orderly and interesting and delightful. All people can see this. Many people do do this. It's also set against the backdrop of the horror of sin and death. But most of all, it's set against the backdrop of God's covenant commitment, his promises to rescue an undeserving and sinful people so that one day they can enjoy a perfect, resurrected world of peace and goodness. And so the psalm wants us to look up to Yahweh, our covenant merciful God, and see him there in his kingly glory, But the way that it helps us to do this is not just by giving us a theological lecture about God's attributes, but by giving us a bunch of poetic metaphors to help us to look out at his world. It starts by helping us look at the weather. At the weather. It says that he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. His messengers are winds. His minister is a flaming fire. Of course, it is not literally saying that God rides on a chariot through the sky. It's a figurative way of saying that in the shifting clouds and in the blasting wind, in the stabs of lightning, in all these things, God is showing us his power and his glory. We have a lot of interesting weather in central Texas. All of it is meant to show us that God is mighty. Of course, many people today, just like people all through history, are very worried about the climate and its potential to harm us and our world. But this psalm is showing us that God rides its even most fearsome aspects like a cart. It is all under his control. Verse 5 says that he has established our world on foundations. Unlike many of our houses in the dry Texas soil, under his power, the earth will never be moved. The planet and its climate are being wisely ruled by God. We don't need to be afraid. Just like God once created the world out of nothing, one day the Bible says that he will destroy the world and then recreate it when and how he's ready to do so at the end of all things. 
The next few verses move on from delighting in the weather and what it teaches us about God. It bubbles with joy as the psalmist remembers God creating the world. It tracks more or less with the first couple chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, the way that they lay it out. Verse 6 says that when God first created the world, it was covered by chaotic water. In the ancient Near East, they believed that the gods were born out of the churning, watery chaos that had always existed. But the Bible teaches not only that God created those churning waters out of nothing, but that he rules over the chaos and uses it according to his perfect wisdom. This verse says that this watery deep was really like an article of clothing. It's a garment in which God decides to dress up the planet. In verses 7 to 9, you hear about how God divided the water from the land. He sent the oceans and the rivers and the lakes exactly where he wanted them. He fashioned mountains and hills and canyons in just the right places. The entire world, even the parts that seem to us to be so great and so dangerous, the psalm says, these are really just his canvas. Noah's flood, of course, was a kind of recreation God judging and cleansing the world by drowning it once again in chaos. But in Genesis 9, just like he'd done originally, God once again separates the waters from the land. And then he mercifully promises never to flood the world with water again. In verse 10, you shift from this delight in God's work of creation to now what we as theologians call his work of providence. Providence, that means the way that he's taking care of everything all the time. You hear about how he's tending to the springs and to the rivers. It means that Barton Creek, the Colorado River, are his. In verse 11, you hear that he uses the waterways to nourish all these wild animals. And then look at the end of verse 13. It says, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And so, yes, it's true that the world does operate according to observable and orderly patterns and scientific laws, but they never do so apart from God. Everything is happening by God's own rule. Every ant, every grackle, every coyote, they are all being cared for by God. Later on in the psalm, in verses 19 to 23, We hear that God rules over our time. He rules over our days and our seasons. The sun and the moon are there because God is moving them across the sky. And as he does so at nighttime, it tells us all these interesting animals come out to do their thing. All the owls and the possums come out to kill my chickens. The seasons turn in their cycles. God's ruling over all of it. In verses 25 to 26, the psalmist reflects on the ocean. And listen to this. this is, he's like a little kid. He says, here's the sea. It's great and it's wide. It's teeming with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. He says, wow, it's so big. It's so full of so many quirky and creepy creatures. He could not have imagined the kinds of mind-boggling, crazy things that we are discovering at the bottom of the ocean. But even today, we are discovering new species and wonders all the time. And then I love verse 26. The psalmist turns to consider 
Leviathan. <laughs> this is the ancient sea monster. It's probably some kind of big whale. Lots of people in the ancient world feared the ocean and its massive beasts. But the psalmist rejoices that God made Leviathan and that he made him to play with. We don't really have monsters today, I guess, unless we consider aliens or maybe politicians. But the point is the same. God made them to play with. They are his toys. Whatever the things that scare us the most, they're not scary to God. They're playthings. He's in charge. The author here is learning to delight in God's creation just like God himself does. And he's inviting us to do the same with him. There's all these places that God's helping us to look out to see God's care for the plants and for the wild animals. But then in verse 14, you shift. You shift now to the world of humans and their work. He says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he might bring food from the earth. So, of course, given that the ancient world was almost entirely agrarian, the emphasis here is on farming and on domesticated cattle. But even though most of us today don't have to grow our food, it's still true that all of our food must be grown somehow. The world right now is painfully relearning that unlike dollars, food and energy and houses and microchips cannot just be printed out of nothing. You have to put work into them. They have to be grown. But it never grows on its own. We eat by God's gift and love. That's typically why we pray when we eat. We are thanking God for the food that's right in front of us. We're recognizing that he's brought it there to us and put it on our table. That the food will only benefit us to the extent that God wants to nourish us by it. It's a gift, just like the entire creation. Verse 15 shows that God even provides much more than we need. We don't need wine, but the psalm says that God has given us wine to give us joy. I don't need to say, I'm sure, that this does not mean that we should be addicted to it or get hammered with it. But it is a gift, and it's a gift for our joy. We don't need it. We could survive on water. But the psalm says, God gives us wine. It's enjoyable. You don't need beautiful clothing or adornment. But here it says that God has given us oil so that people's faces can shine. In the ancient world, olive oil was a cosmetic. This is a world of abundance created by a generous God. God is inviting us to enjoy his generosity whenever and however he's pleased to pour it out on us. But the same idea extends to all kinds of work, all kinds of labor, not just to farming and ranching. In verse 26, again, like a little kid marveling at all the vehicles in an airport, the psalmist rejoices. He says, whoa, look at all these ships on the sea. Aren't they cool? God is behind. God is with commerce and business and travel. So whether you are diapering or teaching or coding or painting all of our work can and does happen because God is underneath it and behind it. Verse 23 says that by God's care for the world, by his timing of day and night, the human family goes out to his work and his labor until the evening. And so when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, when you're running to make breakfast before everybody jets off, 
when you commute home in the evening, when you do the dishes and then you collapse into bed, the psalm says that God is there with you. God's behind all of it. God's in all of it. God has given us work to do. Six days a week, the Bible says, we are supposed to work, and then one day a week, we're supposed to rest. But God says, I've given you these six days of working and laboring and the things that I've called you to so that you can honor me by loving and serving your neighbors and your community. God is providing for you through your work, of course, most of the time. But God is also providing for other people through your work. Even the most menial job is incredibly important for God's care of this world. We should embrace our callings with this mindset, even if, of course, our vocations and our work are often marked by incredible frustration and pain. Our merciful, generous Father is always caring for us and for our world. Verse 27, reflecting on the people and the animals and the plants, he says, they all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. And then further on, it says that the Holy Spirit is always at work in the world, not just in the spiritual things like worship or in becoming a Christian, but the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is always at work in the entire world, in mundane things like causing plants to grow, in causing our spreadsheets to balance, in causing our music to harmonize. The Father is always ruling over and sustaining and providing for his creation in his son Jesus and by this power of his Holy Spirit. So we should praise him. Everywhere we look, we are seeing his glory and even more reasons to glorify him. That's how the psalm ends, verse 31. It's a prayer that God would make his majesty known throughout his creation. He says, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. And then it has this prayer, this request that God would delight in his creation just like this psalm has been delighting in it. May the Lord rejoice in his works. It's a prayer that we and all people would see God for who he is. The wise and the spectacular maker and sustainer and redeemer of his creation seeing him at work in his world, seeing him at work in our work, it should move us, verse 33, to sing to him as long as I live, to sing praise to him while we have being. See what that means? It means that to your very last breath here on earth, you are surrounded with reasons to see and know and love and enjoy God no matter what sufferings or loss or disappointments you're facing. Verse 34. May our meditation be pleasing to him, for we rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your generosity. What abundance we are surrounded with not just because we live in a particularly affluent city or a particularly affluent society, but even because we're your creatures. You are a generous God. You have given us so much. Help us to delight in it, but most of all, help us to delight in you as the giver. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.